Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. This is part two of a two-part episode, so please do yourself a favor and listen to part one before diving into this one, because it'll make a lot more sense, I promise. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. So after the massacre, forensic psychiatrists would diagnose James Holmes with a few things. They didn't necessarily agree, but they're all schizophrenia spectrum disorders. So one thought it was schizotypal personality disorder. And this mental illness makes it difficult for individuals to maintain social relationships and can cause the person to isolate from society. Um, It leads to anxiety and depression and a bunch of other symptoms. But before his rampage, James was always trying to find ways to diagnose himself. And as I mentioned before, he seemed to always know that something was wrong with him. Again, we've seen it since childhood, he was talking about it. His theory of dysphoric mania was not an official diagnosis, but one of his own. Dr. Victor Roos, a professor of psychiatry at the University of California in San Francisco, says that dysphoric mania is not uncommon with patients with bipolar disorder. The vast majority of them never turn to violence. And I think we have to say this so loudly and clearly that the vast majority of people with psychiatric illnesses do not go on to kill people. Right. It's rare. Right. But if you are hearing voices and seeing things that aren't there and you're very paranoid and you're self-protective, I'm sorry, but it does happen. If you're experiencing this altered sense of reality, it's not out of question. Again, most schizophrenics kill nobody. But in severe cases, Dr. Roos says, patients can become really agitated and they become caught up in these paranoid delusions. And they read meaning into super trivial things. They'll be like, see something on TV and, or a passerby or a bird flying, and they're like, they're talking to me. That was meant right. for me. Um, of course, this doctor declines to speculate on what was going on with Holmes because he never met him. But this is not something that was super uncommon to, for him. And he said that in some cases, psychiatrists who are unaware of the risks prescribe antidepressants for patients with dysphoric mania. And these drugs can make the condition worse. Mm-hmm. So James was being treated with an SSRI, an antidepressant called sertraline, which is the drug name for Zoloft, the generic name for Zoloft. Mm -hmm. And his doctor gave him that, treating him for what she thought was depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. But that drug can make things worse. But more importantly, she's missing all the psychotic disorders that needed to be treated. The depression, you know, possibly would have gone away with that. But she's treating a... She's treating a serious thing. Depression is a very serious thing, but it's not going to necessarily make you homicidal. Right. But she's treating it with something that can make his... suicidal, but not... Yeah. Right. And she's treating it with a drug that can make his psychosis worse. Was he still taking the drugs? Do we know? I think so. Because his his, his dose had been tripled from 50 milligrams a day to 150 milligrams a day over several appointments. She kept titrating up. And just under four weeks after starting the pills... Dr. Fenton's notes say that James was showing psychotic level of thinking, guarded, paranoid, hostile thoughts he won't elaborate on. He was smart enough not to tell her everything. Right. 
All of this is to say that there is some evidence that antidepressants could have made James' situation worse. It could have affected him negatively. It does not overlook the fact that his psychotic symptoms weren't being treated, and that's the bigger problem. But what the treatment he was receiving could actually have made him worse. Right. James wrote a ton about himself before the shooting, and he called it the self-diagnosis of a broken mind. More hints. Right. More red flags. Everywhere. So a roommate to read this. I'm so frustrated. James wrote a ton about himself before the shooting. He sent it to a psychiatrist the day before, and Uh. she didn't receive it until after the shooting. Uh. How frustrated was she? How guilty. I mean, I feel really bad for this woman. she could have prevented it, but I don't know. Who knows? Well, she was the only person at the time with all the information, and I think she did what she thought she could do. Right. But nobody was treating the psychotic symptoms, which is confusing for me. Maybe because depression is so much more common. Yeah. But we need this to have its day. Yeah. Like psychiatric symptoms aren't that uncommon. There really aren't. Like it's not super rare, especially he had three relatives with schizophrenia. Right. Did that not come in the intake interview? I feel like it probably did. should have. I want to go over some of what was revealed in his writings but know that these are James' thoughts, theories, and diagnoses. This is not from a doctor. And some of it's a little wonky. Some of it made no sense at all. But we're going to cover the stuff that did. So in this notebook that he mailed to the psychiatrist, he describes this human capital theory that he'd begun telling his ex-girlfriend, Gargi Data. It was this whole theory that he could add value to his own life by taking the lives of others. And there was a whole calculus involved. It's like, for each life I take, I get one point. I get like I take their point... You get zero points for any injured people. They have to die. Right. Um, And he didn't want to kill kids. Mm. So that's why he chose the midnight showing. Mm -hmm. But he killed a flipping kid. Right. Okay, so it seems like he has a little bit of like a moral code there. He doesn't want to kill kids, but he has absolutely no problem killing adults to benefit himself so he the man has a psychiatric illness and it can explain exactly what happened here but there's a level of selfishness and awareness that really makes me mad about this guy Mm -hmm. because i can i give you i give you the psychiatric illness and i recognize your brain's broken and it works differently and i'm frustrated i give you that you have a psychotic disorder and that your brain is broken and that nobody had the tools to help you right your the signs were all there but nobody could help you Hopefully that changes in the future, but I'm really fucking annoyed that he was so selfish. No, I'm really frustrated that, yes, of course, he didn't get the help he needed, but he didn't. I know lots of schizophrenics, and they're not wildly selfish people. Right. But this guy, he's lacking some empathy. He seems, he's got a psychopathic feature flowing around in there. Okay, he, he said he considered carrying out the mass shooting at the movie theater since the day he bought the shotgun, which was May 28th, not long before the shooting. He listed a host of physical maladies from schizophrenia to Asperger's to restless leg syndrome in a section that he called self-diagnosis of a broken mind. He complained of fatigue, catatonia, insomnia, social awkwardness, isolation, hyperactivity, problems with his eyes, ears, nose, and penis that oh. he injured himself when he was a child. He says that they were all constantly dripping. Wow. Ew. Ew. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, that seems like an STD. Yeah, that's, that's a different There's a song problem. about the mushroom drip. Right. That's got to be edited out. <laughs> that's the name of this episode. 
<laughs> mushroom <laughs> drip. Right, mushroom drip. <clears throat> Sorry. That's grody. That is, yeah. Right. He was so obsessed with himself that he would study his physical shortcomings in the mirror obsessively. But perhaps the biggest symptom that he describes about his broken brain is the difficulty he has forming thoughts into words. Again, everyone saw this. He simply cannot communicate or contact with, have contact with other human beings without being wildly uncomfortable while doing it. And he says he, that fueled his hatred of humanity, which is interesting because it's his own problem. But right. he's, he's mad that he can't connect with people, so he hates them. Right. And he wants to create meaning for his life, so he's going to kill them. He struggles with an odd sense of self, waging a constant battle between his real self and his biological self, which is interesting because I'm not sure I totally understand what that means. And he noted that he had recently lost the battle by allowing himself to fall in love. So he has this like spiritual self, which I assume is his real self, and his biological self, which is the part that fell in love. I'm, I'm unclear right. about that. Describing his own mind, James wrote, it is broken. I tried to fix it. I made it my sole conviction but using something that's broken to fix itself proved insurmountable. I think that's really interesting. Wow. Neuroscience is the brain studying itself. Yeah. And he had a broken brain studying itself. And he knew it. Tragically, he pursued knowledge as a cure by choosing a field of study, but it didn't work. Neuroscience, he says, seemed like the way to go, but it didn't pan out. In order to rehabilitate the broken mind, my soul must be eviscerated. I could not sacrifice my soul to have a normal mind. He said that he fought and fought until the end. To relieve his personal torture, he sought to escape by distracting himself or ignoring the problem. Still, his depression and his low opinion of himself persisted. And so, he says, in the end, he made the choice, and he noted in his composition book, that the last escape, mass murder at the movies. Here's the trial. Defense attorneys did not dispute that Holmes killed these 12 people and injured 70 more when he slipped into the midnight premiere of the Batman movie. But they say that his brain was so addled by schizophrenia that it distorted his sense of right or wrong, and he had no control over his actions. And this is an important distinction. We all know he's mentally ill. No argument there. But to be criminally insane, you have to have not known your actions were wrong when you were committing them. Right. And he says and writes everywhere he knows it's wrong. Right. So it doesn't matter how sick he is. He's not going to get off of this by being insane. Defense attorneys elaborated that Holmes suffered from schizophrenia. He thought Barack Obama was communicating with him through winks and nods during his speeches. And he held this bizarre belief that each life he took would somehow add to his own value. Behind bars, he sprinted into walls while naked, cowered under blankets, and even sucked his thumb and cried. Prosecutors revealed that two court-appointed psychiatrists both found that Holmes was sane when he opened fire, chasing moviegoers up and down the aisles, shooting them when they tried to flee. This is horrifying. Subdued and emotionless, his demeanor never changed. James is currently serving 12 life sentences rather than the death penalty. All right. We talked a little bit about the depression through line. And is that argument even fair? I would say that the biggest problem with this treatment is that nobody talked about these psychotic features. But there's some interesting research about antidepressants and crime. Dave Cullen, who writes for the New York Times, covered the shooting in Columbine in 1999. Cullen initially believed that mass murderers Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were lone outcasts who exacted revenge against the jocks for relentless bullying. Cullen now believes that Klebold was depressed and turned his anger outward. Adam Lanza, the Sandy Hook elementary school shooter, 
whose name we will not speak, also suffered from social isolation, anxiety, in addition to autism spectrum disorders. Lanza is rumored to have taken similar drugs to Holmes. But my God, Lanza, his problems were so, this is a different episode, but is this can't just be it. It can't, this is a, this is an easy fallback. When we talked about earlier how people want to put it in a box and they want to make it simple so it can't happen to them or their children. Right. But by doing that, by simplifying it like this, we end up missing the real cues that all of us need to be paying attention to. Right. At home. And be aware. And of. just even, you know, I'm not that I'm saying you need to call your sister and tell her you think your nephew's schizophrenic, but you do need to be aware and watch and like monitor stuff, right? Right. There's another case. Patrick Purdy, another school shooter from 1989, took antidepressants and antipsychotics for a similar reason. And Kip Kinkle, who killed his parents before going to school in 1988, also took Prozac. There's a few of these. And while it's understandable how this through line could be made here, I think they're missing the larger point. The issue is that antidepressant, and this is an important one, antidepressants are not always the right treatment. And they can make the situation worse. And they may have in James Holmes' case. So they didn't treat the bigger problem, and they could have made it worse by giving him antidepressants. Right. I mean, it'd be irresponsible to create a narrative in which depression, which is something that a huge population suffers from, could make someone primed to kill. That's not the issue. It's just important to recognize that, A, it's not that simple, and B, antidepressants can cause problems in psychotic right. people. We also cannot blame his parents solely and that is such an easy out. I hear it all the time. Someone, some kid does something awful at school, and another mom will be like, oh, they must have seen that at home. Right. No, they didn't necessarily see that at home. Right. My children have done things that are unholy, and I swear to God I haven't done those I, same things exactly. at home. Yeah. Like, they have screamed things that I, I mean, they're much better at being crazy than I am. Right. They're their own person. They're their own person. Like, yes, parenting counts. But we are given these creatures as they come. They, they have predispositions. They are not blank slates. We can do a lot with parenting, but it's too easy and it's weak to say that it's all the parents. Right. It's like you're raising two children and they're completely different. Same parents. Right. You know? Well, and if he can, if he can sit in front of three psychiatrists who don't recognize these psychotic disorders for exactly what they are, how do you expect mom and dad to see right. it? Okay. It's natural to want to blame somebody for horrible tragedy, but as we talked about, it's not simple. And we need people to prioritize mental illness. It needs to be something that's talked about. It needs to not be, oh, the bad parenting. It can't be that, because that's right. how people, that's how shit like this falls through the cracks. That's right. how James Holmes got to kill. If somebody would have stopped him, he was compliant. He wanted help. If somebody would have understood it, it right. would have had been a different outcome in my in my hopeful opinion. And it's okay if you have a, an issue, a mental disorder, whatever, just you just need to get the help. You it's okay. Help. Right. It's everybody makes it it's not okay. You're crazy. You're put into this category. Yeah, it's very stigmatized. Yes. So approximately 1 out of every 20 people will experience a serious mental illness. And we don't talk about it. We need to talk about it because when a crime like this can be prevented, why aren't we paying attention to it? We talk about you know, gun control, we talk about parenting, we talk about all these other risk Abortion, factors. Crazy, <laughs> crazy, we can get gay rights. <laughs> we talk about it all, but this is very serious. And and it's my hope to open the dialogue up that it's okay if your kid has issues. What's not okay is not doing something about it. Right. We all know the parents who think their kids are perfect. That, that's not us. All right, so Courtney, would you read to me some of these letters from parents who do have children with serious mental disorders 
and how isolating. It must be horribly isolating. Yes. Be horrible. Could you imagine? No. Um, I wonder what the statistics of people, like you're in a community, you build these families and your friends and your parents and the coaches and the teachers, and then what, did they just move? Right. Yeah, they must have. Changed their name. I mean, that's what Could I would do. Could you imagine? If your last name's Klebold? Right. Like Lanza? Well, and the common thread in all of this is they all, Lanza's mom had guns and they weren't locked up and they, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like well, you she, have, all, she already knew that her son had issues. If you have a son who's messed up, the onus is on you not to have weapons. Right. Of any kind. Right. Like you can't, we're, we're, we're trying to be super cautious not to make this like political, we're putting little sentences in there about like. Gun control it really is a problem, especially if you have somebody who's unstable in your home. Right. You can't – first of all, he killed her. Right. P.S. with her own gun. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. One of the big takeaways of the show is that it is incredibly important to prioritize your brain health. And that means showing up for yourself through all of the struggles that life can bring. BetterHelp Online Therapy is here for the twists and turns that might come up for you. They will assess your needs and they can match you with your own licensed professional therapist in less than 48 hours. And let me tell you, that is quick. You can often wait weeks to get an appointment with traditional therapy. And look, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I love therapy. And I don't understand the stigma around it because even if you're not going through something, it is super important to make sure your side of the street is sweet. It is essential and a necessary part of my life, and I simply cannot live without it. Seriously, getting yourself the professional help you need, and we all need it, is not only good for you, but it's a great example for the people around you in your life. And who doesn't want to have the people around them in therapy? BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's a professional therapy done securely online, and the service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send an actual message to your therapist. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you don't ever have to sit in that uncomfortable waiting room like you did with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is still available. BetterHelp is a great way to show up for yourself and invest in your well-being because, well, you deserve some inner peace. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash how not. That's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. As a special offer for How Not to Raise a Serial Killer listeners, BetterHelp is offering 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash how not. That's betterhelp.com forward slash how not. Read for us some of these excerpts of these letters of parents who had children with severe mental illness. Dear Robert and Arlene, people look at me cross-eyed when I say we're lucky my son Tim was diagnosed with schizophrenia as a child. He was 11 when we first got the diagnosis, the last in a long line of them, from autism to speech disorders to depression and bipolar disorder. He was in a psychiatric hospital when he was diagnosed. After a suicide attempt that forced us to acknowledge he was sick, three years and 11 hospitalizations later, 
we made the agonizing decision to put Tim into long-term residential treatment because he was so delusional and so violent that we feared for his safety, our safety, and the safety of our other children. We were alone then. We were accused of filling him with poisonous medication because we didn't feel like creating structure or enforcing rules. Strangers cursed us when he had a meltdown in public. Acquaintances <laughs> felt justified in beating their breasts and declaring they would never send their children away. More children in this country die by suicide than cancer, diabetes, and every birth defect combined, but somehow trying to keep our son alive was considered bad parenting. In residential treatment, Tim learned what it was like to live without the voices, and since he was still a child, we were able to ingrain in him the importance of his meds and therapy to keep the voices at bay. We learned that our son's illness is in his brain, not in his upbringing. He is 21 now. He can never be left alone for more than an hour or his anxiety and paranoia kick in. He takes his meds, and today they are working. But I remember watching him being frisked by the sheriff we had to call after he broke every door in the house and threatened to kill us. There was a razor-thin line between that day and today. We spend every day staving off a return to that day. We know we're lucky to have the opportunity to do so. We could have so easily been where you are. We will continue to keep you in our prayers, Tom and Krissa Hickey. That's horrifying. That what do you so do with other children to protect? Dear Arlene and Robert, I want to thank you for speaking up in response to the evil and monster taglines used liberally by the media towards your son, James. Thank you for being brave enough to endure people spewing anger and hatred towards you as you attempt to educate our nation on the painful reality that serious mental illness can be fatal if left untreated and how a devastating psychiatric diagnosis like schizophrenia can wreak havoc on an individual's life, stealing the ability to reason and decide rationally and potentially leading to a tragic outcome. I cannot imagine how you must feel as parents going through the courtroom experiences when what your son really needs and deserves is to be in a psychiatric hospital. I understand personally about losing an adult child to an illness that steals his mind and free will, and I know what it is like to watch helplessly as people judge and condemn your child for behaviors resulting from a brain that is too sick to understand the consequences. My 22-year-old son is mentally ill and spent the majority of his childhood and all of his adolescence in clinical day programs or locked residential facilities for safety. Despite the fact that he was disabled, receiving SSI, and was never able to manage his life in a safe manner, when he aged into adulthood, he received his shoelaces back and a plane ticket home and a free reign to manage his life completely without interference from his parents, his case manager's words. Within months of returning home, he had multiple run-ins with the law, several psychiatric hospitalizations, and he was kicked out of two group homes. We begged our county health department to put him in a hospital. We presented 500 pages of medical records and his doctor's letters advising he could be re-institutionalized for treatment of his illness. This meant nothing to Orange County. Our son was an adult now, and his right to have irrational thoughts flying loose in his mind were supported by maladaptive laws written in the 1960s that mm. made one thing crystal clear. After age 18, our boy would have to present as a danger to self or others if he was ever going to be returned to a safe residential facility. 
There was nothing his father and I could do but to watch helplessly as he was consumed by the revolving door. Mm. He went missing for days at a time and started smoking pot and drinking often. We were constantly worried not only of what would happen to him, but also about collateral damage that might be inflicted in the community. Less than 36 hours after his last release, he walked into Bank of America with a threat scribbled on a sticky note to blow up the place if the teller didn't hand over $1,000. He will spend the next 13 years in the California State Prison. He has spent many months in solitary confinement and now has a crazy boy literally tattooed across his young face. Despite this, he has been denied psychiatric medicine because he is not sick enough. In other words, we have to wait until his mental state declines even more before he qualifies for psychiatric meds that he has taken since age 12. Our jails have become hospitals, but they use pepper spray instead of syringe. The deinstitutionalization experiment has cost countless lives. Families have lived with personal tragedies of lost loved ones for decades without anyone taking notice. Only when our sick kids explode in the community do people share an opinion. You are not alone. I am praying for everyone who has been impacted by our broken mental health system and for our treatment for James. Kindly, Jennifer Hoff. That's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking and so frustrating. It's so sad. I mean, if you're born with diabetes or cancer or some, it's an organ in your body. It's a brain and of course, that's where, you know, personality and behavior comes from. But it's like to be treated like criminals for having a child who was born. I mean, you really you can't make schizophrenia. It's not bad parenting. Right. It just isn't. It's associated with very random things like having a flu-like illness in, I think, the first trimester of pregnancy. That leads to schizophrenia. That's not bad parenting. Right. You know, I mean, it's like it's so frustrating that all of that they're getting these hate letters. Of course, most schizophrenics don't go on to do what James Holmes did, but there is a potential for it. Did he do drugs? Do we know? Did James Holmes do drugs? Yes. I think he didn't. I didn't read anywhere that he did any drugs. And also, the the symptoms would have had to come before the drug behavior, given he had them at age eight. Right. So here we have disentangling the nightmare, right? Because if you do have these psychotic symptoms, you might be more likely to do drugs, which thereby makes you more likely to have psychotic symptoms. So you can get into this kind of storm-like effect, these perfect storms where people like this. I mean, we have this with impulsive type killers all the time. They're born impulsive, so they do impulsive things like box or ride motorcycles, and then they get head injuries in the frontal lobe, so they become more impulsive. Right. The chicken, egg, the whole thing. Um those letters both inspired me and frustrate me. They inspire me to do these podcasts so that we can just be sitting in our cars and listening to these stories and these letters. I've never read those before. I hadn't heard those letters. Mm-hmm. You know, they inspire me, but they frustrate the hell out of me for everyone who came before who could have been treated so they don't end up in jail like this guy or could have been treated so they don't become a mass murderer. Right. Oh, parenting's no fucking joke. No, it's not. Let's just not do it. Well, we it's too late. <laughs> There's all these humans we let's made. Let's give them back. Let's give them to someone else. <laughs> back to their fathers. So let's talk about prevention. Let's talk about silver linings. As I stated up top, this show is meant to be forward thinking, looking to prevent future tragedies the best that we can. There's always going to be crime. There's always going to be tragedies. But if we can stop some of them, isn't it worth it? We need to do this by opening up conversation and sharing knowledge. And I'm really looking forward to having people like you come in here and like bring your perspective because there's too few people really studying this and there's too few people talking about it. And every person who's been a mother or a parent has a perspective 
on growing small humans and creating adults. We're not raising children. We're raising future adults. And I think that, you know, even just small things, like instead of saying, oh, Johnny's the best soccer player and he's so well behaved at home and talk about the real stuff, right? Like we do as we do. parents. And you, you say, my kid's an asshole today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, instead of like making it this, Everybody, everybody's so great and, and doing so well, and he got into the best college. No, you know, he flipped me off last night yeah. and slammed his door. He's normal. He, yeah. Well, and I think that comes back to the narcissism of we all think parenting's a self-reflection, so it's more about us, right? right? Like, look, my son got into Cornell. Well, who are you really talking about? You're, you're patting your own self on the back. But if we destigmatize that, if we take away that it's the parent. Listen, we tacit pa tacitly pass on genes to our children that have more of an influence than our parenting does. Right. We, so we take credit and we take fucking blame. And by the way, your son got into Cornell. You didn't. Yeah. You <laughs> went to PCC, bitch. Right. <laughs> so let's really, it's like, oh, the Dodgers won. We won we last won. night. I, I, I don't, don't play for the Dodgers. I, even if I, even if they wanted me, I wouldn't right. play for the Dodgers. Well, they definitely wouldn't win no. if I played, but... <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like that we mentality. Mm -hmm. Like, well, you know, he got in. He got in. Yeah, not you. He won the game. Right. Have you noticed, though, it flips if they lose? We Oh, we played great last night. Oh, they sucked last night. They lost. Right. Well, you weren't on the team last night? Right. You were on last week? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's so true. But if if we can talk about that, I mean, you know, I call, we got it from our friend's cat, but I call my daughter Richard when she's bad because the nickname's Dick. Right. You know, and it's like, I'm not afraid to... To say she's not perfect, she's she's got great qualities. She's incredible. She's a racehorse. She's she's she fascinates me and she inspires me. And I also sometimes want to throw her out a window because right. she's very challenging and very headstrong, very very smart. Right. Um, you know. And then my son's like a Labrador Retriever, and he's just like Daniel, and he's right. sweet and like just wants to please you. Wants to and, please yeah. yes. Hugs his eighty four year old great uncle and says, "I'll never forget you." Every time he sees him, yeah, yeah, he's darling. And my daughter, I love. Just as much. I mean, she's my firstborn. I mean, my entire heart lives in her chest. But she's, I'm not, I never tell people she's, you know, easier than she is. Right. I'm so sorry, Charlotte. I know you're going to listen to this one day. So I want to make sure we end on this note of what can we do? What what can all of us do? What can any of us do? Right? Like, let's open up the dialogue. There's this incredibly insightful article. I hate butchering names. We're going to have to go for this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this. Rachel Prookno? Sounds good. You, you don't know, so you believe me. <laughs> PhD shared some very concise thoughts on what society as a whole can do to prevent future tragedies like this one. We can start by paying more attention to serious mental illness. That's amen, sister. Then we do mental health. And here's an important distinction she makes. Contrary to widespread misconception, mental illness is not the opposite of mental health. Mental health is a state of happiness, satisfaction, and interest in life. In contrast, serious mental illnesses are brain diseases, diagnosable conditions impairing a person's emotions, thinking, social relationships, and their ability just to take care of their basic needs. In short, their capacity to function in a society, the brain's job, right? It's a, it's a physical illness, it, and we, not, we need to make that distinction between mental health. It's like, oh, yay, let's do our gratitude and our or uh, meditation, but this is different. You can't meditate your way out of these serious disorders. Right. We need to make determining the causes and improving the treatments for serious mental illnesses a priority. Instead of observing May as Mental Health Awareness Month, let's make it Mental Illness Prevention Month. 
She goes on to say that next we can stop treating people with mental illnesses like criminals. Nobody wants to hear voices in their heads telling them to kill people. Nobody wants to experience wild mood surges that swing from meteoric manias to deep depressions. Like, imagine PMS, but all the time and times a thousand. Mm -hmm. They should not be incarcerated or roaming the streets. We need a more effective, compassionate continuum of care, from independence in the community to protective care and institutions, to provide those with serious mental illness the dignity they deserve. They can't help this. They can't cause it. Yeah, it just right. Saying compassion, that's everything. It's everything. And like you said, let's stop talking about how well Johnny did at the baseball field. And how is Johnny? Right. You know, right. is he still eating boogers and killing cats? Because right. we need to talk about that. And is he okay when he struck out? And we, yeah. you know what I mean? Did like, he try to kill his sister? Right. Finally, she says, we need to change laws requiring that people with serious mental illness ask for help. They're not always going to ask for help. They just don't. They don't even know they need it sometimes. So we need to change that they have to ask for help, be in danger of harming themselves or others, or have committed a flippin' crime before anyone can jump in. Our laws have led to one disaster after the next. Instead, we should make it easy for people to get help, protecting the rights of the people with serious mental illness, but the society as well. So here we've covered all the places where people have fallen through the cracks, where people should have stepped in. But then the problem becomes, when you're an adult, is that we have to change. Legislation has to change. Laws have to change a bit for us to not have our hands tied. When we do get the education and we are aware when something is a problem like is it easy to get help i mean no 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 it's not. We, we both have known people with serious psychiatric illnesses whose parents friends and family have all tried to help them but there's only so much you can do right and it does take work mm -hmm. i was was gonna tell you like my daughter came to me recently um and said i don't know what's wrong with me i feel like I'm sad all the time, and I have a great life. I have a great family. My brother's amazing. I have a boyfriend. I, I have straight. I get straight A's. I'm doing really well in school, but I don't feel happy. Like something's wrong with me, wow. and I don't know why. And huge alarm, yeah, red, red flags, flag. you know, because she's always been so happy. Yeah. And so my husband and I sat down, and we talked about it, and we were on it. Like, there was no, like, oh, she's just a teenager. Oh, she's just got her period. Or she's PMSing. Or she'll get over it. It was like, okay, let's all sit down as a family and, and figure out what we're going to do. Hmm. So we're going to take you to the gynecologist, and we're going to check your hormone levels, and we're going to, if you need to go on birth control to level, whatever we need to do, we're going to do all the research. What about a You're going to eat healthy, we're, and also you're, we're going to call a therapist. Yeah. She said, I don't need a therapist, right? Because that's what you... It's stigmatized. People, yes. People think, oh, if you go to therapy, you're, that you're broken. Something's oh, wrong with therapy, you. I love therapy, but you're right. It has that whole stigma. And we were saying, you know, talk to somebody that you don't know, because obviously she tells us everything and we, and you, the communication is there. It's a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. But talking to somebody else that doesn't know you, um, that is not going to judge you, doesn't know your family, you know, you're, it's a safe place. Yeah. So she's willing to do that. We're going to the gynecologist. Good. We're getting her a therapist. We're going to have her eat healthy and make sure that, you know, do all the things but preventative. Yeah, first line. Right. Like, you're doing it before anything becomes worse. And when a child comes to you and says, I'm depressed, I mean, suicide is a, it's the largest killer of kids. And, 
it's people do brush it under the rug and people do ignore the stresses that kids are under. And if someone tells you they're depressed, like, good for you. Believe them. Yeah, believe them and do something. Right. Good for you. Give her a hug. I know. From Auntie. That's horrible. And she's darling. Oh, she's, it's horrible. I'm sure it's hormonal. This happens every period and it's gotten worse and worse and her periods are lasting nine to 10 days. And she's just like, I don't know why the I'm crying. She stubs her toe and starts crying. I mean, she's kind of a mess. You're like, you're going to bleed in 48 hours. That's right. what happens. Um, and sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's not. Like, yeah. You know, well, and you just don't want to catch stuff. them on one of those bad days where they feel hopeless. And they're like, I'm going to jump in front of a train. I'm mean, Not right. that Maddie ever would do something that impressive. Right. No, no, no. It's true. Like, that does happen. You know, my cousin's best friend hung himself after an argument on a phone. Right. And he wrote, sorry, I couldn't hang around in his... He was just impulsive. He wasn't a suicidal person. Right. He just was impulsive. And it yeah. was like horrifying. So you got to take this stuff seriously. Good for you guys. Good for you and Brian. Yeah. Now I'm going to worry about Maddie. No, she's fine. We're getting her. Right. We're going to. Well, thank you for actually. doing that. Oh. To the gynecologist. Oh, good. Plus, she's going to want to have sex soon. So might as well put her on. New podcast. Birth control. <laughs> well, you know what? It's now. not horrible to have your kid on birth control just right. in case. Right. Right. Like, better that grandma so i do want to include some silver linings regarding childhood mental illness as well because there is a long road ahead but we're seeing some progress and you and i talked about that a little bit today that like even people are more responsive more reactive and before columbine this wasn't even a possibility really you know we didn't see that before and of course everyone's going out a lot of these were kids who used to just kill themselves, and mm -hmm. now they go out in a blaze of glory because their names become infamous. It's and like a copycat. It's kind of yeah. like a copycat. And, you know, I have a lot of theories about why that happens. But like you said, I mean, we're more prepared. Teachers are more prepared to recognize it. They do a lot of more reporting. We have seen progress. We've made huge progress in the last decade in recognizing and treating psychiatric illness, in particular psychiatric um, psychotic disorders in children and adolescents, which before they didn't think it even could come until your early 20s. And we recognize it now. If James Holmes was a child now, it's my hope that somewhere in that long line of falling through the cracks, somebody would have picked him up and mm -hmm. seen it for what it is. Um, because we do recognize it more now. There is help out there. But we need to arm pediatricians, parents, teachers, and mental health professionals with the data and standard of care. Because even the psychiatrist he was seeing didn't think schizophrenia, even though he clearly has a schizophrenia spectrum disorder. He has every single symptom. Mm -hmm. But she didn't, the depressive thoughts and the OCD were more important to her. But I don't know what he was telling her in the room. So I'm not, I'm not throwing her under the bus. I'm just recognizing that none of us historically have had enough information, but it's out there now. And I wonder, like, with the teacher thing, because a pediatrician you see once a year, right? Right. So teachers are underpaid, mm -hmm. obviously. A lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. But if they were able to be educated on what to look for, they see these kids every, every single day. day. Well, hopefully some teachers are listening. Right. No, no more no fucking more. responsibility <laughs> for these poor teachers. But honestly, if you're working with this age group, it comes with it, Right. right? So increasingly, primary care physicians, pediatricians are become the principal treaters. But as you say, they need people to alert them that there's a problem. Psychiatric ill youth and families need to know that they have these problems in order to get treated. Because of all this progress, we see that these primary care providers and the behavioral health services that do form the backbone of contemporary psychosis and evaluation, they're getting more information and they're more on top of it than ever before. 
There remains some debate whether psychotic disorders in children are actually becoming more prevalent or just the strides in research and training coupled with better screening are just detecting it more often. It's not mm. clear what's happening, but regardless, we all need to have this information and, and it is moving in that direction. Because as we said before, anything detected and treated in childhood has a much better outcome. And as we've seen, it can be a matter of life and death. It's, it's harrowing when you think of them. And when you saw, when I saw his parents on the stand, you want to hug them. Right. Because it's like, they're like, I'm a mathematician and I'm a nurse practitioner. Like, I'm not. I haven't hurt anybody. I haven't done anything. I thought I did all the right things. And they were a really close family. They weren't. There's no right. abuse. There's no trauma to point to. There's no, like, the biggest thing that happened is he moved. And that's that tendency we all have to be like, well, that weird thing happened to me in a child. Show me the kid who didn't have something to point to. Right. My dad was an alcoholic. Get in line. Right. You know, I'm not saying childhood trauma is not a thing. It's a huge thing, and it certainly can change the trajectory of a child. Unequivocally, the research is solid, but it's not It's not acting alone. And right. it's certainly not acting in this particular situation. Right. What did happen was what didn't happen. Yeah. All of the places he could have been treated, all the people who could have seen it, but they didn't know. Right. And when things are right, when things come up, be proactive. Mm -hmm. Right. Be proactive. You are the first line of defense, unfortunately. But if you choose to have kids, if you choose to become a pediatrician, if you choose to become a teacher, that just kind of comes with that, that territory. And you have so much to worry about already. Right. But this has to kind of go up the list especially when we see that these types of problems can, can turn dangerous. And we can talk about changing the future of a psychopath, too, that we have that information, too. Mm -hmm. That's coming up. But, I mean, we, we literally have the tools, but they're stuck in the ivory tower. Right. And my hope is to kind of break them out and be able to bring it to this kind of medium to talk about. Right. Well, thank you, Courtney, so much for coming in today. I really love talking to you. Of course. You know, I love it. Yeah. You love true crime and you love your kids. I do. How Not to Raise a Serial Killer is a Cloud 10 Media production, executive produced by me, Dr. Michelle Ward, and Sim Sarna. Our editor is Emily Crane, and our producer and researcher is Courtney Blomquist. Our music was created by Josh Cook, with artwork provided by Brian Stefanik. Follow us on Instagram at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer, and on TikTok and Twitter at Hentrask. That's at H-N- T-R-A-S-K. And if you'd like to share a story or ask a question, you can email us at hownottoraiseaserialkiller at gmail.com or call and leave a voicemail at 818-392-4403. If you like our show, do me a favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After all, if more people know about the show, maybe fewer kids will turn into serial killers. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.